recording on here. So, um, but yeah, this if you if you feel out, this is something different, and you might think it's minuscule, but I just want to. It's just a quick oh. thing. We uh, okay, sure. and I are going to the bank, and we see an American flag on the back of a car, and it says, "If this flag offends you, I'll help you pack." And then on the other side, it says, uh, stand for the flag or bend for the cross. Okay, now you may think, so what's the big deal? Here's my big deal. If this flag offends you, I'll help you pack. Now think about what he's saying. If you don't agree with what this flag stands for, you've got a problem. I'd, and he may not have meant that, but then I, I thought, you know, that's kind of what they do in churches, isn't it? If you don't yeah, believe, well, what, what about this? Get out. Yeah. What about the second part of that? Repeat the second part of that. I'll help you pack that part. No, no, the the other side of the flag or whatever. Oh, okay. There was two stickers on the back, and the other yeah. one said. Stand for the flag or kneel for the cross. I think is what it says. I just told you. I said, take right, a picture right. of that. But I got to discuss this with Doug because what if your flag stands for tyranny and oppression? Okay. What? At some point, that British flag was not—it uh, was not acceptable anymore. I mean, whatever happened to stand for what's right, or I'll help you pack. Well, it does. Go ahead. Uh, I was just saying, you know it. It's very representative to me of of holding the two positions in the mind. Um, stand for the flag or bend the knee for the cross. I, I don't understand that one at all because are are you are you a is the is the bumper sticker intended to imply that if you don't stand for the flag you're going to bend for the cross or is it telling me to do one or the other um because i would i would do the latter before the former in my in my current walk in my Christian growth. Um, it's, but, it's just a cutesy you know, Jewish thing that they do with words. They're real, they're wordsmiths. And the last thing I sent you was a story about some guy named Pecker. Right. Who apparently owned the uh, National Enquirer. Right. First First sentence out of Wikipedia, he was born in Queens of the Jewish in a Jewish household. That's all I need yeah. to know. 
Yeah, there's another yeah. thing that's really happening. Yeah, there's another thing that's really happening a lot out there. They're not hiding their Kazarian connection anymore. Um, and that, that I think, is, is one of the, the biggest tells um, that you, know, you would think people could wake up to because now they are undoubtedly referencing themselves as very, very seldom do I even see anybody being referred to as a Sephardic Jew anymore. But notwithstanding Sephardic and Khazarian, it's, it's, uh, you know, they're, there's, they're both just a, you know, a genetic, uh, uh, differentiation between the two. So, um, but they're 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 not seeming to hide behind those types of monikers and identifiers at all anymore. So it's clearly pretty well out in the open for anybody to be able to see and understand and ascertain. So, um, but clearly, you know, we're under assault. In fact, as I was thinking about the title for the the message, you know, the uh, of Isaiah, at least in terms of a prophet and so forth. I, I was almost thinking, you know, the more I think about Isaiah and what his name means and other things with regards to his prophetic record, I almost, you know, recognized a real good title would be anti-Messiahs in the land. Um, and then to, and then to be able to recognize that you can't claim to understand the Old Testament as they, those who call themselves Jews do and profess, and then to take the book of Isaiah and simply cast it out. Well, in my research in Isaiah over the past couple of months, periodically from time to time as I've been doing other, you know, other um, fellowship messages and so forth with you guys, I, you know, I've, I've been tinkering around Isaiah for, for some time. And um, there's, a, there's a school of thought, essentially, that has divided the first 40 books of, of Isaiah from the last 26 books of Isaiah. And I am now beginning to contemplate that the reason for that is to discredit the highly visionary parts of Isaiah's prophecy. And the reason there's a somewhat of a division is they're trying to do it over the fact that they believe that it's so different from the first 40 that it just appears as if it was done by somebody else. And the whole thing is just total hypocrisy to me because when you take Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, and it clearly says the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. I mean, there is your timeline. There is your time stamp, if you will. Now, to so essentially what they're saying is that, well, this is clearly by the title, Doug, it is referencing Judah and Jerusalem in the days of those four kings. 
what do those last 26 chapters have to do with anything pertaining to Jerusalem and Judah and those four kings specifically? And it's just another one of these things anywhere that you can create division. My wife and I used to, you know, we got an opportunity somewhere in the mail for this archaeological, biblical archaeological magazine. And we decided to go ahead and take the free subscription for its 12 months or whatever. And then you're offered, you know, along the way to get a two month or a two, uh, two year, three year, five year, whatever it was at reduced rates and so forth. Well, after we spent 12 months perusing those from various times and Judy loves archaeology and if, if she had a better life uh, outside of her relationship with me. She probably mm -hmm. could have been a very, uh, you know, a very uh, studious and astute um, archaeologist. Uh, and but she loves that. And she found herself, as I did the same, when you read these articles that are in there all the time, it always practically without fail leaves you with an impression that is. Well, did we really find something or didn't we find something? It, it seems as if we found something pretty profound and pretty meaningful, but they're always concluding the articles in such a way that it's, well, we're not really sure. You know, it could be, it couldn't be. Uh, there's a lot of questions about it, blah, 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 blah. And so at the end of the day, it's like, what am I reading this stupid thing for? Because we found ourselves just completely, you know, uh, watching the double speak that was being done and and turning it completely around. Uh, good evening, Melissa and Isaac. I see you both there. Uh, good evening. Both of you. Are, uh, there you guys go. There you guys go. All right. So anyhow, um, yeah, Russell, it's uh, it's another one of these things that um, in our day. Um, we scratch our heads and wait for what the next event is going to be. I, I don't know if you guys have been watching the, the, uh, news uh, that's coming out already with regards to the Tennessee shooting at the Christian school. There's already video that has surfaced, um, because they released the body cam footage mainly. And some of these guys on these these internets and with this technology and cameras and whatnot that they are able to zoom in on this stuff, there's already photos right now showing the guy that they show in the camera coming into the school with his uh, his weapon in his hands, and um, he has uh, turned to a kind of a profile side to go toward a door. And his shoes are clearly visible in the in the screenshot or in the in the video. And so somebody has zoomed in on the actual shot. And I, as I say, from the actual live footage, you can see what appears to be anybody knows what the little logo on the side of a Nike sneaker is. It's, you know, kind of that little half curve or, you know, whatever it is, um, gradual curve. And it's all it's a shoe with a, with that white Nike curve. And when he's laying down on the ground, when they've got him down on the ground, um, 
the photo that is right above him from the body cam of the police officer is showing a tennis shoe that does not even look the same as the one of the one standing in the hallway. And the minute we start talking about this kind of stuff, you're, you know, you're labeled as a conspiracy kook and so forth. But, you know, it's getting to the point that we cannot deny the video evidence here. But I know with artificial intelligence and people's ability to doctor things, it's becoming very difficult to know what exactly is true and what is not but here we are again uh with an administration that desires to see you know uh weapons removed from the people's hands regardless of any uh, any constitutional amendment that protects it and that flag that that individual you know wants us to uh salute to and and so forth um what is an individual to do? How are you to instruct your children? How, you know, do you continue to keep them rooted and grounded in a biblical foundation and um, you know, continue to watch the propaganda unfold and the continual doctoring of all the information that is available out there? That Whether it's a political candidate, a judge, whatever, go ahead. But that idiot is on a 22-city tour across America, this is what I know I heard, to promote how well the economy is doing under <laughs> his leadership. It, it, what am I missing? Is y'all's economy great up there? Yeah, we're we're running ads from a former gov. We're running ads from a former governor that is is he was the proponent of work to welfare, which means if if you're going to get welfare, you got to go to work and so forth. And so those were things that were done years ago. And so he's now got a radio spot saying it's time to get back to what we had. And why are able-bodied adults not working? And you know the workforce needs able-bodied individuals. To work and so um you know we need to get back to that and and yet as you ask go ahead the word around here is nobody wants to work and they don't have to the labor right. force right so that leads so, the, the, one so to answer your question, uh, I always thought labor, uh, the labor force was a, a mechanism of economic activity. So I guess uh, today that's that's different now. So anyhow, isn't, isn't there a scripture that says um, if you don't work, you don't eat something like that? Yes, there is. Okay. There sure is. Um, you know, I was going to say I, I heard somebody else there, but you know, it's Paul's uh, epistle to the Thessalonians in Thessalonica, and 
um, you know, it was a command. And that was for the purpose that nobody would be able to say that these people that were going around spreading the good news of the gospel message, that they were just, you know, receiving money and so forth. They wanted them to work for their own bread. And, and it's a principle in, in the biblical record, obviously, when God said six days shall you labor and the seventh is a day of rest unto you. Um, you know, that's, that's obviously uh, meant for a reason. Um, so, yeah, but what does it matter, right, Melissa? I mean, uh, this, is a, this is a new day and this is what's been promoted to the society for the last uh, 50 years uh, in various ways. And a lot of people are getting the message. Yeah. And they're opting for exactly that, not to do anything. Well, didn't wasn't the uh, civil rights movement involved with um, um, promoting welfare and uh, basically destroying black families? Well, absolutely. Anything that you can do to demoralize the current society, you know. In fact, I made a comment to my wife the other day. Might have even been today. But I said, you know, when you think about it, the whole intention, and in fact, maybe I could go there. I, I was driven it back into the Psalms. And as we we're doing some study here, um, I think it was in Psalms 12 that I was in. And let me see if I can see if that is right. Um, yeah, let's, let's, let me, let me just open the door with this Psalm 12 help Lord should be Yahweh or YHVH, the Tetragrammaton that was removed from the Bible in 5,000 instances in our Bible. Help Yahweh for the godly man ceases for the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, with our tongue will we prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? And that just kind of settled down into my soul. And I was commenting to her and I said, the reason we had it came up was because here was this um, advertisement for a judge that's running and another judge that's running. And both of them were telling how evil the other person is. And she says, you can't even, you don't even know what to believe, I believe was her, her words. And this passage just reminded me what, what David is, is concerned about and, and bringing before 
Yahweh is these evildoers, literally, who have said, with our tongue will we prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? See, there, the Christian desires Christ to be Lord over them. The Christian desires to be one with the Father and wants to be obedient to that will. But this people, they don't even, they admit who is Lord over us. Saying justly in their own mind, we don't have anybody who's Lord over us. We speak what we speak because... That is how we will prevail. And boy, if that isn't ever true. And so, Russell, you sent that email and said, I, I know I will. I, you, I've been saying that we've got to speak it boldly and uh, without fail. And um, there's nothing left for me to do honestly and that's what i've said is I, I see nothing left for me to do but to speak the truth because in the in the speaking of the truth it does slay them they may still intend to kill steal and destroy but it slays them we we make it perfect upon them that they they are the wicked who have sought to slay us with the words of their mouth and with their own actions and so forth. I don't know if I made any sense with any of that at all. It's just what I see is they say it and everybody shuts up. And this last, you know, seven, eight, ten weeks were, you know, maybe a, even longer, the a couple of different series there. Um, no man spake a word or spake of him for fear of the Jews. Uh, they want us to be afraid because that is the only thing they have. They have power when we are weak. We are weak when we will not use the word and slay them because I really believe that that power, that's where the power comes from. That's when God hears that righteous ringing in his ears. Right now, it's just a clamor and noise. But when he hears the speaking of the truth and calling the adversary the adversary for the adversary that they are, um, he's delighted in that. And I believe that probably motivates him more than anything we can think about. Go ahead. Yeah, in 17, that really jumped out at me. He's telling us how to get lined up correctly. And within that, it says, reprove the ruthless. So there's a instructions there that we are to stand up to them, isn't it? It sure is, and and it's 
it's throughout the biblical record. So there's there's no reason for us. Again, it is because of fear. You know, we value the life that we have in the Lord. You know, we value it. And as such, it appears in some respects because of our carnality that we value our life and therefore we don't want to say something. But we have to go beyond that, as he said, you know, fear not those who can kill the body, but rather fear him who can leave both body and soul in the grave. And uh, that's the way the apostles all looked at it. Um, Peter himself didn't want to acknowledge Christ. And for three times, he was told before the cock crowed thrice that he would have denied him three times. And he surely did. And as soon as he did, he knew he did. And as soon as that cock crowed, he understood exactly what he, you know, what he had done. And that had to be very, very, you know, disappointing for him in his heart and so forth. And to know how he had, you know, Christ had even commissioned him with a great intended plan for him yet. And to know that he denied it, denied him, had to be very, very tough. But he went on to be the Peter that we know that he was destined to be. So, you know, I know those sound like Paul words and, and you know, um, people still want to wrestle in this world against all these, these things. And um, I understand. It, I have grown, however, in my Christian walk. And I, I truly believe that if we want, his heart opened up to hear and it be attentive to our our call and our cry we've got to really number one recognize that it's truly only his way and whether we're going to wave a flag in his face and say this is our way we the people or you know whatever no man i mean it is truly coming back to him and we're in such a mess, it's going to take a divine intervention. And as I was reading in Isaiah, I'm just going to go ahead now and segue right into this before it gets too late. I, I wanted to make an introduction regarding Isaiah as a prophet. It would really be an introduction that I would use for any one of the prophets. And I'm going to use this opportunity, and I may repeat this, periodically throughout the weeks that we engage the prophet Isaiah in these fellowships. So one of the most significant reasons this prophet is impressed upon me in the spirit over these past several weeks and months leading to this time that I finally just confessed to you, I, it's so heavy on my mind, I don't know where else to go. Um, I believe it's because Isaiah was much like we find ourselves today. Lone voices in a sea of even our own contemporaries, which is professing Christians, 
who seem to desire and find refuge in their alliances with other nations and peoples, utterly willing to replace God's sovereignty to rule over us with new world order alliances that they have actually accepted and created. And I'm speaking specifically with regards to the church world's involvement in the United Nations. Now, we did a message, a fellowship message. Um, it was dealing with the UN, um, United Against God, I believe is what I titled that one. And th these churches all over the land are all with this United Nation, with these goals. The worldwide churches of Pentecostal, worldwide churches of God, I am certain, are the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Lutherans, Episcopalians, the major denominations, even the evangelical arms of Christianity are all in this United Nations with these United Nations goals. Anybody who hears these messages, go look at your own church's charters of who they adhere to and what they're adhering to, and you will find in those charters that they are adhering to the UN goals. And so what I'm saying is that this is exactly what it was in Isaiah's time. There were all these alliances that were being generated around the, the you know the region there and isaiah was one of these who was that lone voice and he's one of the most notable facts i believe is how he interacted with king hezekiah as his chief advisor now isaiah routinely provided king hezekiah with a lot of comfort under the duress that Assyria was on the move and had been for at least 150 years. And ultimately, Shennacherib's conquests culminated in all of the fortified cities of Judah being sacked. The only exception was Jerusalem. And so they were in a real re Red Sea predicament, if you, if you will. And the prophets are the record of the covenant that God made with Abraham. So for a Christian, they need to understand that the prophets being the record of that covenant, everything that they discuss and convey and record is there for our learning. Christ said it himself. But he, this, this is the record of that covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel. And they bear that record of the literal and undeniable veracity of Yahweh's oath. That is his words of promise and his curse, curses historically appraised. In other words, they provide the confirmation or the manifestation Yahweh fulfilled unequivocally his end of the treaty, or more appropriately, the marriage covenant if if one fails to grasp the gravity or the weight of the concept of marriage pertaining to this covenant and the prophet's record of the breaches of the stipulations 
and of the mutual obligations, much of the gospel message will yet be without real proper meaning and full understanding. Yahweh is the author of righteous contract law. And I know a lot of people that's just, you know, they don't understand contracts, they say, or they don't understand contract law. But the marriage covenant and its stipulations as outlined in Deuteronomy are that law. There is no vague or ambiguous clause, if you will. Jacob Israel's obedience and God's obedience to the terms or the stipulations by the oath are required. The prophets record the manifest violations of the agreement, the penalty terms, and ultimately, due to Yahweh's love of Jacob Israel, a contingency plan of such a profound incomprehensibility, it inspired these words. And I quote, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, though one was raised from the dead. End quote. Luke 16.31. This very concept born by the prophet's record is pivotal in its role as literally the very conscience of God. I really want to drive that concept home in our minds. I'm going to repeat that. The prophet's record. I should say the prophet's record. Manifest violations of the agreement. The penalty terms. And ultimately due to Yahweh's love of Jacob Israel a contingency plan of such profound incomprehensibility it inspired those words in luke 16:31 if they do not hear moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced though one was raised from the dead end quote the prophet conveys that conscience often first by conveying, thus says Yahweh, or this word of the Lord came to me. Each of us, the called of Christ, we're emissaries of that conscience to the remembrance of the people and the leaders of the people making known the obligations due the God of Jacob Israel. That point could be driven home again as well. But by the time of Samuel, the priesthood had become corrupted. Samuel, after the period of the judges, you will recall, he was intent on restructuring the kingdom of Jacob Israel. It is he who apparently, according to scriptures, was teaching or leading a group of men in the spirit of God as prophets. Now, prophet in the Old Testament is number 5030. It's Nabi, spokesman, speaker, inspired man. And it appears from 2 Kings 2, 3, and 5, and at 1 Samuel 19 and 20, that Samuel had created or led 
what has been referred to as a school of the prophets. And as I understand, the Targum uses the words, quote, teaching over them, end quote. So what happened when Saul sent messengers to take David, the messengers were swept up in the teaching of Saul in this men, this group of men that Saul was teaching and instructing. Essentially so swept up in it that they actually got sidetracked from the mission the king sent them on, which is to go take David. Now this would be like one of our military people here being given an order and saying, I won't go, or going and then not returning. And that's essentially exactly what happened. And it appears, or perhaps maybe would appear, that even the knowledge that they now learned of David's anointing to be king might have been enough to dissuade them or to turn them from their mission. But in my understanding, this is what godly inspired men for some 300 years period here had been doing. And none of those people in that 300-year period, we don't have those records in our biblical record at all. It's my understanding they don't exist, that they never left anything. I don't know. I know that what we have is what we have in the biblical record. So I don't know if that 300-year period, if nothing was ever left behind as a record. But it was these prophets, like Isaiah, who, along with the other major and minor prophets, God ensured that their record be preserved and are now part of our biblical record. And as I indicated, the prophets bear the record, and it is unmistakably pertaining to Jacob Israel. The only mention of other peoples is in relation to Jacob Israel. An understanding of the division of this singular kingdom people into the house of Judah and the house of Israel is an essential element in the understanding of the different prophets' records concerning which house or both houses. And the ramifications of the breach, the penalty clauses of the covenantal agreement, they're the prophet's first duty from God to Jacob Israel is to give notice, notify or remind them of the stipulations, notification, a warning of the penalty that's going to be imposed for not correcting the course, for not correcting the breach. Simple contract law. There are stipulations. There are penalties for the breach. If the breach does not get remedied, there are other consequences for the lack of the remedy of the breach, including the total dissolution of the contract. Finally, the execution of the penalty that the breach demands. And the only thing the contract authorizes is remedy. False prophets 
which inevitably arose, they relied on inconsistent idea or belief that because of God's professed love toward Jacob Israel, he would not really forsake them. And they practiced and observed their rituals as their get-out-of-trouble-free card while they ignored the injustices that justice and mercy and proper application of the law covenant for their own people provided. And Isaiah is almost without exception the prophet who clearly envisioned to remedy the breach the necessity of Messiah and Redeemer must come. John at chapter 12, verses 37 to 41 records Isaiah's very words against them in their unbelief. And finally, because of Isaiah's shift to grace, mercy, and redemption in the latter portion of his prophetic record, and the unequivocal inferences of that rebuilding in the isles and the lands to the west, some of the theologians seem to have found it fashionable to either push push much of this into a far future time or mix it, if you will, and adulterate it with their own interpretations. Now, that's an introduction, if you will, to the prophets. And as I say, I think I'm going to repeat it a few times because I think it bears a necessity of repeat so that we also kind of get it down in our heads. I, I, I have become more and more convinced that repetition is the only way this dog can learn anything. And repeat and repeat and repeat is what I have to do in order to learn. So I know that Isaiah, or Isaac, I should say, was going to um, kind of give us a structure of the timeline, if you will, of Isaiah's prophecy and a timeline, or I guess would be probably the most fitting way to refer to it. So Isaac, I'm going to swing in your direction here then and let you open up the door with some general introduction about Isaiah and his 60 years, uh, roughly, of, of his prophecy and his uh, ministerial work. So go ahead, take the floor. Yeah, great. <clears throat> I think maybe this will take five to ten minutes. We'll see. Um, I'm only going to touch on the initial parts of Isaiah's prophecy, and then I think as we get a little bit further into it, you know, I can talk a little bit more about that. Uh, 
sure. in another another episode. But to start off, you know, I guess my thoughts are that if you start reading the Bible from Genesis and you're continuing through the uh, through to the prophets, including Isaiah, you could really easily get uh, the impression that Isaiah is presented in chronological order with the rest of the Bible or everything else that you read up to that point. Um, that all of the stuff with the judges and the kings, you know, and the exodus and creation and all of that happened. And then after that, Isaiah shows up and uh, he gives a bunch of prophecies, right? But that's not what happened. Isaiah 1-1 describes it, it says, as, as you said earlier, um, Isaiah, the, the, the visions that he received and, and the prophecies that he's presenting started during the reign of Uzziah, and then also were part of the reigns of uh, Jotham and uh, who is it? Uh, sorry, Ahaz. Ahaz, King Ahaz, Ahaz. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then beyond that, but for starters, in Isaiah one one, that's how it's described. So, so we know right there that there is overlap, and the reigns of those kings are described earlier in the Bible, uh, in 2 Kings 15 and uh, 2 Chronicles 26, I believe. So um, 2 Kings 15 comes before Isaiah, and it gives basically a very short Cliff Notes version of 2 Chronicles, which comes between 2 Kings and Isaiah. Uh, and it refers, 2 Kings 15 refers directly to 2 Chronicles. So. Second Chronicles gives the most detail about uh, Uzziah, King Uzziah's reign. And then at the end, it refers directly to the book of Isaiah uh, and says that Isaiah uh, presents more detail about his reign, right? It says it right in there. So these three books are referring directly to one another. And these are not, um, these are not notes that, uh, somebody came in and added afterwards the Bible, the words of the Bible are describing these relationships between these three things. So um, if we read about King Uzziah, as well as King Jotham and King Ahaz, we'll understand the context that Isaiah was given his visions within, rather than just thinking that this guy gave some prophecies about whatever time he happened to live in, and then some of it's happened, and maybe some of it hasn't, or whatever. So so I think it's good to start with that context. so first question, I guess, is does everyone know what cliff notes are? Um, because 2 Kings 15 and much of much of Kings overall is, is a cliff notes, basically, of uh, the reigns of the different kings between Israel and Judah. Um, cliff notes are basically these thin little books that let college kids cheat on exams, right? <laughs> it's or to study, study on exams, I should say. So you don't have to go read a whole novel. You can get the cliff notes and you can get the uh, the gist of what happened without reading the whole book, right? So you can kind of cram for a test or something. So that's kind of how, how you could look at certain parts of Kings. Um, so let's start with Second Kings. I'll read Second uh, Kings 15 because it's very short. Uh, this is as far as I know, everything that Second King says about Uzziah. Uh, in the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, which uh, a son of Amaziah, so Azariah is another name for King Uzziah. 
So I'll just say Uzziah if I can remember to do that. So Uzziah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jesaliah of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Only the high places were not taken away. So that's critical because he doesn't fail in God's eyes too much, but there are two things that are spelled out that he fails at. Uh, So only the high places were not taken away and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The Lord struck the king. So this is where his second failure comes in. The Lord struck the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house while Jotham, uh, who, who Isaiah also talks about, Jotham, uh, the king's son, was over the household judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah and all that he did, are they not written in the books of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Uh, and that's basically the, the cliff notes of it, right? Um, so I won't read uh, Second Chronicles just for time, uh, but I'll... I'll give you a slightly more expanded version of or overview of what happens there. Uh, so it starts off, King Uzziah follows the Lord. He's blessed by the Lord and he grows in strength. The nation grows in, grows in strength. Uh, with God's help, uh, King Uzziah builds one of the most powerful Judean armies of that nation's history. And some people say it was absolutely the most powerful uh, army that they ever had, right? So he was greatly blessed. And then Uzziah becomes proud uh, of what he's accomplished. And he decides he's going to go into the temple and he's going to burn incense to God himself. And the priests confront him and the priests say, so this is all, this is all second Chronicles. The priests confront him uh, at the altar and say, you're not supposed to do that. Uh, That's for the priests to do. That's a job that, uh, that was uh, delegated to the priests. Don't do it. And then Uzziah gets upset and a leprous sore bursts out of his forehead right on the spot. And then that's pretty much the end of his story. Um, the end of, you know, it's the end of the records aside from whatever we'll find in Isaiah. Uh, so here's an interesting note. Um, Second Kings, the Cliff Notes version of this story, describes how Uzziah was basically good and f- favored by God, but specifically did not, it says that he did not tear down the high altars. Second Chronicles doesn't mention that, even though it's the longer version of the story. Maybe I missed it. I don't think it mentions it at all. Uh, so I just thought that was kind of an interesting thing while I was reading through here. Um, so next, uh, Jotham is king, and Jotham does well overall. He pretty much follows in King Uzziah's footsteps. There's, it doesn't say much about him, honestly. It's it's just kind of like another Cliff Notes sort of a story, but he does well. Uh, and then after Jotham is gone, King Ahaz shows up, and he's just a big jerk, right? He he doesn't follow yep. God at all. It says right away, this guy's nasty. He turns his back to the Lord, and he uh, tries to form an alliance with Assyria, right? He tries to pay Syria, Assyria off in order to go and suppress Israel. And uh, he, he worships uh, other gods. He burns incense to other gods and he does all of this nasty stuff. So the reign of these three kings shifts uh, over a long period of time from, from good to bad, 
facing God to turning their backs against God. And then, and that is the backdrop for the first parts of Isaiah's prophecies. And that's it. That's the context. And that's a pretty good summary. And as you'll notice, that was probably about uh, 10 minutes. Ah, perfect. <laughs> Time goes fast, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, it sure does. Yeah, I'm getting used to at, at at work. I have to do a lot of large presentations, and boy, time can just cruise when you're talking. Yeah, yep, it sure does. And uh, to cover so much stuff in a small period of time is always difficult, and you hate to feel like you're rushing. But at the same time, you know, uh, that's where study on our own has to come in so that we can kind of keep moving and and keep the, you know, keep the progress in our in our walk going. So definitely. Um, and say, that's a great I'll summary. Say one more thing. Go ahead. I'll say just one more thing so people know what to watch out for. Um, for me, I found that reading books one through five of Isaiah, it's hard to map. It's hard for me specifically to map one through five, uh, or chapters one through five, um, to King Uzziah, uh, to any of those three kings, right? When he gets to six, it's very clearly uh, about about those kings, especially uh, uh, Ahaz, right? Um, so something to watch yeah. out for. That's it. Yeah, and and one thing that I had at the introduction here for part one um, was that books one through six, or chapters one through six, is specifically to Judah and Jerusalem. And so your point is well, well taken there, because that's why it's a little bit difficult to try to to connect it, per se, because it really is specifically to Judah and Jerusalem. And when you can recognize that, then I think that makes it kind of flow. And I think we'll see that as we get into all six chapters of one through six and then six through 12, just as a cursory uh, as well. That's all pertaining to the house of David, basically. And that's a little bit of an essence of how to look at those two sections, if you will, as we're going from, you know, chapter one to chapter 39. And then, as I say, there's a shift after chapter 39 that specifically seems largely visionary on salvation of course isaiah's name means um yahweh saves or salvation of yahweh and so a good title perhaps for the isaiah series might be salvation of yahweh or visionary of salvation isaiah the prophet visionary uh, salvation and so we'll kind of fine tune that and and decide on that but archaeologically there's 22 copies just thought you might like to know a little bit about the archaeological history of isaiah that were found with the discovery of the dead sea scrolls 22 copies not all of them were complete you know because you do get fragments but 22 copies is what was found in 1947 and written on those scrolls that was actually 2000 years ago now most of what we have in the bible comes from masoretic manuscripts or other manuscripts that are really only about a thousand years old 
So you see the Dead Sea Scroll finding and those 22 copies of Isaiah actually make Isaiah the oldest, essentially, book that we have um, older than the manuscripts that were used to um, put together for our entire 66 books of the Bible. And that's pretty important, I think, to show us how important uh, that find and the Dead Sea Scrolls was to have these uh, books of Isaiah, a confirmation. So in other words, what I'm saying is that we now have a confirmation that's not a thousand years old. We have a confirmation that's 2000 years old. So Isaiah was primarily a prophet of the southern two-tribed kingdom of the house of Judah. You find that in chapter one, verse one. And it conveys, as Isaac was sharing with it, a, a period spanning the reign of four kings. And also, verse 1 tells us unequivocally the subject of the book. The subject of the book is the vision which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And a subsequent vision in his continued prophecy of judgment and salvation of the kingdom of judah verse 2 commences with the declaration for the heavens to hear and the earth to hear and why because it's yahweh who is unmistakably speaking and that's very important when we find these in these prophetic utterances it is a declaration from God himself. As I say, these prophets are like the conscience of God speaking. And it should be unmistakable. Go ahead. I'm sorry. But didn't Christ uh, reference uh, Isaiah quite a bit? Um, I believe Christ has two main references. And the interesting part about that is that they are references to Isaiah out of both the first 39 and the latter chapters as well. And so I believe that's another confirmation that we can definitely say we will go with Isaiah being fully written or fully recorded by the hand of God uh, and Christ having referenced both parts of that book clearly indicate that Christ was under the understanding that it was written by Isaiah. And this is how we get to catch these people that, that love to do this. And, and again, we're just a bunch of lay people here. We're just a bunch of people who love our God, the creator of this creation, and the record that he's left for us. And we have all these scholarly people who are constantly, and, and make no mistake about it, they're not really bickering amongst themselves. The only reason there's bickering amongst them and, ost and ostensible division is because it's by design, by the workers of iniquity. They've always got to work something in as a point of contention or division to cast doubt. And as long as they're casting doubt, hey, they're good with that. because. You know, a lot of people don't 
think things through and they're not real deep studiers and they look to what somebody else tells them. And even if what somebody else tells them is wrong, they're going to stand by it until the day they die because that's what so-and-so preacher told them. And they'll never have the benefit of having learned anything more. But you're right, uh, Melissa, he did reference Isaiah. Absolutely. And, and as we go along, we'll obviously get to those, I think, and make sure that we point them out. So basically, that was chapters one or verses one and two. And uh, as you guys know, I've got four pages of things of notes out of out of the first chapter of Isaiah. And it's frustrating to me because as I go along, I just find so many little details that I, I like to bring out so that we kind of keep this steady concept in our mind of what's going on here. But as I say, he's speaking formerly in, in the prophets are when you see verse two, where he commences with the declaration for the heavens and earth to hear he's speaking formerly because that's what he did in Deuteronomy 32. So this brings us back in time. And he speaks currently, which is here right now in the current era, because he's saying, hear you, earth. So that means right here and now. And then again, by doing from the heavens and to the earth, he's also speaking future. So there's the three stages, if you will, that that are contemplated in that little verse. And as I say, I just find all these things so encouraging and stuff but um formerly in deuteronomy and the song of moses of course when he said here o earth and here you heavens um currently in isaiah here jeremiah chapter 6 micah chapter 1 and 2 and chapter 6 and ezekiel 36 that's all speaking to the current era that they're that they're in and the future which is the gospels in revelation and all of it, near and far, is what he's conveying by making that statement to hear, O oh, heavens and earth. And we know this by what happens next. He says in verse 3, uh, it's in, uh, let's see, yeah, uh, second half of verse 3, he says, uh, or verse 2, I have nourished and brought up children. Okay, well, think about that. When you nourish and bring up children, that has a past tense, meaning that you have brought them up and you have nourished them because nourished takes place over a period of time. So it implies the current era, the past era of having brought up children and now they're grown up and they've rebelled against him. You see this in your own family situation, the familial household. Children are brought up, they're nurtured and nourished. And then there's the point in which you may see rebellion. If not rebellion, they certainly go on out into the world and the world brings them into rebellion in some respects and this is the complaint that you see god expressing right here in just those few little words verse three he says he says um 
the ox knows his owner and his master's crib. But Israel, boom, right there, Israel. What are we talking about? We are talking about his children being Israel. And they know not their master. And they don't consider the judgment that the master has. Ah, sinful nation, seed of evildoers, brood of vipers, as, as John said of them, and uh, that Christ also laid upon them in Matthew 3, 7, and certainly in chapter 3, 20, chapter 23, rather. Laden with iniquity, corruptors, provoked, uh, provoking the Holy One. So here you have trade and commerce flourishing, as, as Isaac expressed, from these records in Kings and Chronicles. And Jerusalem being a center of activity, but under it is dishonesty. Purposely debased systems and adulterations of commodities, enriching few. This is what he means by saying they're cupters, they've forsaken the Lord, provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger. They're gone away backward. You know, that phrase, gone away backward, I even stopped on that, you know, wanting to know what that phrase, gone away backward, was, was to mean to me. And it's a figure of speech which defines regression. Oh, gee, Doug, we didn't know that. You know, it's just the small things I, I settle in on, you know. Sometimes I just, I'm just, I marvel at them because there they are and they, they have so much more meaning than a simple word. And so he's essentially in verse 5 saying, why, why would you be stricken? Why would you want any more punishment? Think of your parent-child relationship. You've got a, a disobedient child, and you want to punish the child. And you, why would you continue to do this? Why do you insist upon being punished when there's such a better alternative here to being punished? And and this is exactly what he's saying. He's saying, why should you be stricken? Why would you seek more punishment? Can't you see that I'm against you? Your whole nation is under siege, city after city being taken, and you can't see it yet? Why do you want to continue to be stricken? Verse 6, from the sole of the foot even under the head, there's no soundness in it, but wounds, bruises, putrefying sores. He's sitting here saying, you know, your wounds, I got pus coming out of them. And you can't figure out that you're in need of immediate godly and righteous reform and even under the face of of the kings which he had reigning in judah which were godly even hezekiah indeed was in the process of reforms but it was almost one of these cases of too little too late and again the heart so deceptive above all things that you can take the heart as Hezekiah did in his latter reign as well and let his heart be so emboldened to let the enemy into the camp and show them the bounty of his goods. Verse 7. 
your country's desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land strangers devour. Can anybody see America here? Can anybody see the, the cities of Europe? We have forsaken our God. We have allowed others, anti-God, anti-Christ, to come in amongst us and say, you can't do it this way. You can't be this way. You have to be inclusive. You have to accept this behavior and that behavior. In fact, if you don't, we're going to get mad at you and call you names. Your country's desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour in your presence. It's desolate. It's overthrown by strangers. Unbelievable. Verse 8, and the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. The cottage reference there. You know, I said, what is a cottage in a vineyard? Well, it used to be that you would have this little cottage in the vineyard, and they would stay in that cottage so that they could go out and um, run the animals off that would try to ravage the crop the the vineyard at night and then when the harvest comes and the vineyard is done and there's no need to protect anything anymore the cottage is left there and it's desolate it's like a besieged city and you think about what a besieged city looks like desolate buildings all over the place uninhabited and that's what he had to Throughout all of the land of Judah, Jerusalem was the only city spared. And Hezekiah did humble his heart and prayed to God because Assyria was right on the, the doorstep. Verse 9. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto him a very small remnant, we should have been a Sodom and we would have been unto Gomorrah. He taunts them taunts them as rulers of Sodom and people just like Gomorrah. Isaiah actually recognizes it of, of, of the period of time of Abraham. You know, on that Sodom and Gomorrah also, Paul, just as we discussed in the last few week fellowships and stuff, a very small remnant. That is what Paul is talking about, is this very small remnant, once again, that was going to be in those days because the Messiah had come and the Messiah was going to carry out judgment once again upon Judah. Verse 10. Um, oh, I did that one. Verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices? He's done with them. They're abhorrent. And, and he even says that he delights not in it. And then he says, when you come to appear before me in verse 12, who's required this at your hand? You're sitting there scratching your head going, well, wait a minute, you did. But no, he said, who's required this at your hand to tread in my courts? And that's what they've been doing in his courts his courts of justice quite frankly 
Ah, yes. Bring no more vain oblations there at 13. Just drop on down. <laughs> you know, rather than recognize their all idolatry, they just continue to rely more and more on themselves. And just as Isaac sa uh, said in the introduction to the timeline of the various kings, there they are, you know, Ahaz trying to make an alliance in some way to prevent his destruction, which was imminent. It was only Hezekiah that staved it off for 15 more years. Uh, then he drops into, actually, verses 11 through 15 are part of basically what you would call a bill of particulars of the breach or the declaration of causes, the indictment, so to speak, that is being brought against them. And at verse 16 and 17, he gives the remedy. He says, wash, make yourself clean, put away your evil of your doings before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the willow, widow. It's all there. You know what? This, yeah, it's all Go. there, right? That's my my thoughts when I read those things. You know, got so much of this book is talking about all these things people are doing wrong, but as soon as you hit these scriptures that say, look, just do this stuff here, you know, we're always asking, what's the solution to all of these problems you're facing? He's saying right here to these people, you're doing all this stuff wrong, just do this stuff. It's very prescriptive, you know, that's what we need to do, that stuff right there, defend the orphans, plead for the widows. Um, I feel like, you know, that's where the answers are. All of the other stuff, all of the other difficulties that we face are because we're not doing that stuff. Um, Amen. You know, can I can I take a minute? Go ahead. Yeah. A um, couple of notes here that I think are really interesting since, you know, this if you're reading through the Bible front to back, this is the first one of the first times you're getting the prophecy, right? Um and you can learn a lot. You have to learn a lot from the language that's used here, some of the language that we just went over. So I hear some Christians say uh, things like, well, the Bible is literal. I take everything it says literally, right? You have proof right here in this language that you should not take everything that the Bible says literally. Lots of it you should take literally, but not all of it. It's not just the literal book, right? Um, and Isaiah, uh, let's see, one six is talking about sores and wounds. Um, there are not literal sores and wounds. It's not talking about literal sores and wounds. It's talking about sin, right? The the, the sin that's in these in these people. Um, that's not literal. So you can learn how the Bible communicates by reading, especially these prophecies. And then when you get to the New Testament, you get to Revelation. You can start. Uh, and I'm not I'm not saying this like some expert, right? Um, when you get to Revelation, right. you can start understanding uh, that so much of that book is metaphor. It's not literal. There's not a literal, I don't believe, there's a literal dragon that fell out of heaven. Um, I think that's a metaphor, uh, and much of it is metaphor. So, so just as you're reading this, watch out for the language and the mode of communication that the Bible is trying to teach us. Um, again, 
in Isaiah 110, it says, you rulers of Sodom. It's not talking about Sodom. It's talking about Judah, right? Um, right. Don't take that literally. It's it's a metaphor. And there's so many metaphors, especially in prophecy. So that's it. Absolutely. And that's a great point to bring out because it's, it's, it's essential. And, you know, one of the doctrines that I've, I've managed to, or at least intend to try to keep in, into my thoughts all the time in my study is whether they are doctrines that we've known, learned, or otherwise, or parables, allegories, visions, prophecies, or metaphors, and even scripture itself. We can't, we must remember that we can't be misled to interpret them contrary to the law of God or contrary to the biblical historical record. And yeah, these are metaphors of the swords. This is, he's trying to, he's, it's being descriptive, if you will, of, of, of a condition and very, very important. And this is coming up on one of my favorite passages of all. This one here in verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Don't forget that scripture ever, ever in your mind in terms of this. The white as snow and the red as scarlet, crimson, because... That is, again, what Isaac just mentioned. It's so descriptive. It's such a metaphorical language, poetic language in many respects. And this is another problem, I think, with our society is we're not taught any of these things in language classes anymore. We don't have any, you know, real capacity for, uh, you know, poetry and so forth and to understand it and feel the emotion of it and this is God's emotion. Like I said, you're literally from the prophet. You are literally getting the conscience of God. And when you read these like that and understand them that way, that it wants to just seep down into your soul. And, and you feel this as a parent would with a parent with a child, or you feel this in, in these ways that God is, is trying to convey. But here in 18, one of the most interesting things about this is you say, oh, he wants us to reason with him. But it's, it's not that he wants you to reason with him. In other words, let's talk together. What he's actually conveying in this figure of speech is let's dispense with the excuses already. Think about that. You know, your parent-child relationship, you say, come, child, enough of this already. I've already heard your excuses, your lies, you're trying to cover up for what you've done or whatever. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, let us reason together. It's let us dispense with this. And he actually invites Judah not to begin reasoning with him, but actually put it to rest. Let's have this breach settled that you may know my righteousness. Let's just admit it. Let's admit that there's a judgment and a punishment coming so that we can get on with my grace. Does that make sense? I hope it does. 
because that's exactly what he's doing. And then he actually does convey that that's precisely his intention in it because he cuts to the chase in the second half of the verse by saying, though your sins be as scarlet, I'm going to make them white as wool. And so he he just makes that whole reasoning thing. Let's dispense with this. Let's get right to it. And and that's exactly as you mentioned, Isaac. Understanding these modes of speaking and and so forth carries right into Revelation, and that's Revelation chapter seven, verses nine to fourteen. He says, just correct this breach. Let's get the punishment phase out of the way of this breach, and I'll forget it ever happened. And then verse 19 and 20, he says, but if you're willing and you're obedient, you're going to eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you're going to be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. This is exactly where we're at. Obedience, you're going to be able to prosper and have the good of the land. Disobedient, you're just going to be devoured. How so? Numbers 23, 19. And then when you when you have for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it, he did. He clearly did. And so there's nothing to be left but the judgment. It's just like a parent-child relationship. When you have spoken the judgment and then you withdraw the judgment, you have no righteousness in you. Literally. Because once it's spoken that there is a judgment, one thing about God. He does carry out judgment, but he is merciful. And that's like any one of us in our parent-child relationship. There is judgment, but we are merciful. We are made in his image, and we withdraw some of that retribution in order to not do wrong or unrighteous in our judgment. And here we are. At the top of the hour. I know I had an introduction here and that took up a little bit of time. I really believe as I began to think on it and I prepared that those thoughts. And just as we've just gone through this now, this chapter one, almost to me, I began to think, Jeremiah, how you doing, Dad? And, and I said, well, Jeremiah, I've only got three verses <laughs> Since you last asked me that, and he's like, I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you get so much out of it. And um, I'm and I'm not trying to make more out of it than there is. But as I began to look at Isaiah chapter one, it occurred to me, you missed chapter one. I'm wondering if you can fully grasp the other 65 chapters. It, it, it began to have so much meaning to me as I began to just break it down verse by verse. And I thought, you know, 
you miss a lot if you miss this here. So what I think I'm going to do is anybody that needs to go, um, I've got some more, and I think I'd like to conclude that in the recording. And that, like I say, that's fine. A lot of you are on different time zones, and that's fine. And if it's okay with you, I'll just continue. And then this will be recorded uh, to the conclusion of Chapter 1. And it's probably only going to be another 20 minutes or something. And um, But I don't want to delay anybody um, from getting uh, to their evening. And I know there's children to be put to bed if they haven't been already and things of that nature. So anyhow, I'm going to just continue here. And we were in 19 and 20. Let's see. Um, 21. How is the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it. But now murderers. And, and that's just not hyperbole you know we talk about being whether you you take something literal or not how is the faithful city become a harlot okay well being a harlot means that it's an idolater it's fornicating it was full of judgment full of righteousness that used to lodge in it but now murders it, it's evident something is going on in that city that even the king has not dispensed with. Thy princes are rebellious. One more thing, probably on 22. Um, oh, I was on 21. Yeah. Um, uh, I just made, I had a note in my notes about our cities from shore to shore righteousness used to lodge in it you didn't you weren't afraid to walk down any streets in america 150 years ago even as much as 50 to 75 years maybe 50 years ago there might have been one or two of the cities you might have been a little bit concerned walking down in 22 the silver has become dross thy wine mixed with water there's a reason this scripture gets put in here there's a reason god speaks this to isaiah and it, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 28 and 30, and Ezekiel 22, 18 and 19, the silver becoming dross. This is the first phase, if you will. It's hard to escape the obvious. Even wine being diluted is being inferior, made inferior. This, if you debase your coin and your silver, and then you're everything else follows it. You're going to debase the wine. You're going to debase the the fuel that's being put in the vehicles with corn fuel, you know, and on and on and on. We're going to debase the food with something else to put in it so that it has some filler in it so that it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And so you're going to see it happening. Thy princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves gifts and follows after rewards. They judge not the fatherless, neither does the cause of the widow come unto them. This is the same charge made by Jeremiah 22, 17, Ezekiel 22, 12 to 20, Hosea 4, 18, Micah 3, 11, and 7, chapter 7, verse 3. 
it's a two-tier justice system. It's a two-tier religious caste. It's a two-tier political caste. It's a two-tier trade caste. Each taking something in reward or getting something for that symbiotic relationship. Not even exchanges. Somebody actually today or this week I heard, I forget what it was, uh, but it, 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 I, I said, wow, they're even announcing. I think it was in a political ad. It says congressmen have, you know, are making themselves rich because they know the laws which are going to be passed. So to invest in the companies, which will give them the returns on their investments. And everybody knows that a person can go into a congressman for a you know, for a hundred thousand, one hundred twenty five, hundred and forty, whatever it's up to now, and they can leave it in six, eight, ten, twelve, fifteen years, whatever, and leave it as millionaires. And nobody ever scratches their head and says, "Well, how does that happen?" I mean, some of us do, obviously. And here, here's the thing: this is exactly what's going on. This. Two tier justice system and and two tier tier religious caste. If you're not in the religious caste that um, has the money flowing to it and gets the television advertisement because it says the things that it needs to be said, it doesn't talk about baptism. It doesn't talk about this biblical relationship of God with His people that are supposed to be a blessing to the world. Any of that gets talked about. Well, you don't get any airtime. So same same situation, just different time period. Uh, verse 24, therefore says Yahweh, Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of my enemies. Now you might think at first that these enemies and adversaries are, I guess, um, those people that aren't his people. But that's not true at all. These adversaries that he's speaking to are within Judah. And these um, uh, uh, that he's going to be avenged of are within the house of Judah. <laughs> this is destruction and wrath against the Judahite rulers and the corrupting judges. Jeremiah 6.29 and 9.7 and 33.7, Malachi 3.3. You know, the prophet could see the necessity of divine intervention as he actually says in verses 27 to 9. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. That's, that's exactly what he's conveying. And Zion here is number 6726. It's a mountain in Jerusalem, obviously. It's on the east side. And also it means Jerusalem. At Brown, Driver, and Briggs, um, I found that this was under the heading of Zion. Zion is number 6726, and that's what it meant. But under Brown River, uh, Dry, Driver and Briggs, I found this, quote, a residence of David. Well, yes, it was the residence of David. But also, he indicates, they do, Brown, Driver and Briggs, often in poets, for, let's see, often in poets slash prophets, Jerusalem, from a political point of view, sometimes equals inhabitants. Okay, so that's no big revelation, you might think. Well, 
it is to me because I'm sitting here saying Jerusalem actually represents what? The house of David. Not just the residence of David, but the literal house of David is what it represents. And so Jerusalem, from a political point of view, as he they indicate, is Jerusalem sometimes means inhabitants. So therefore, it's the inhabitants of the house of David. So it, it's not, you know, it's just more to confirm to us how important it is to understand the division of the two houses and that this prophecy begins by addressing Judah and Jerusalem. Is this uh, to um, what I was going to say here? Um, I had a note here trying to read my scratchy here. Um, oh, oh, my my thought was here, as it says, Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her conference with righteousness. The note I had to myself was, is this to be prophetic of the time of Ezra and Nehemiah's day upon their return from Babylon? And to answer that question, we actually have to address the word redeemed. It's number 6299. It's pada. It means to ransom. There are several different ways in which to ransom. One is for an assessed price. Secondly, you can ransom one from violence or death. And thirdly, you can ransom where Yahweh is the subject, such as Yahweh ransomed uh, Israel from Egypt. Uh, secondly, or you can, Yahweh can ransom from exile. And this is what was going to be happening was that they were going to go in to a Babylonian exile. So he is saying and conveying the prophet is Zion shall be redeemed with judgment. They're going to be redeemed, but not without the judgment. So it's the judgment that's going to redeem them, if you will. And then her converts with righteousness. Well, who were those converts going to be? Those converts, I submit, are those who can who who returned in Ezra and Nehemiah to rebuild uh, the temple. And we're going to find confirmation of that because Daniel is going to. Um, well, Daniel does prophesy of the 70-year captivity in Babylonian captivity, I guess is what I probably should say. So in verse 20, 27, our definition of Zion is inhabitants of Jerusalem, Jerusalem itself, the house of David. The, the inhabitants of the house of David will be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. Was Jerusalem or its inhabitants the one that was to be redeemed? Were they the ones to be ransomed? after being carried into Babylon. And of course, that's Daniel chapter nine. So was Zion or Jerusalem, the inhabitant, the house of David, all of the house of David, or was it a remnant? It says the converts. Converts completely implies a remnant. It does not apply all of them. It only implies the converts. So those two things can be inferred. One, some remained in Babylon. And secondly, some yet in Babylon were not converted in spirit and heart. And did they return later in time? And even some of those 
who came from Babylon, were they all converted in spirit and heart? The answer to that is no, because Ezra and Nehemiah clearly had to put some effective reforms to purge out those who came in and became the mixed multitude and would not put away their foreign their foreign women. And perhaps those could be some who Christ said he knew they were of Abraham, but were not his sheep. They could have been an admixture that Ezra 9 records. And so here we are in just one short passage here in chapter 1, here verse 27. We can be assured that God's promise of redemption from this captivity in Babylon was directly in keeping with Daniel's 70-year Babylonian prophesied captivity. It was God's righteousness of his judgment that was executed, which then allowed him to bring them the righteousness of redemption, the hope and that grace that a Judahite remnant was going to be redeemed. And verse 28 shows that the destruction of the transgressors and the sinners shall be together, and they that forsake Yahweh shall be consumed. This is all still dealing with Judah, the house of David, Jerusalem. And they actually did return under the decree of Cyrus. And this redemption is without any pretense of a ransom paid for their liberty, which was brought about. And even I found a little note from, uh, I forget where, um, it might have been just from a commentary or something on Isaiah 127, but it indicated that the Chaldee manuscript renders at verse 27, renders the entire scripture written this way. And I thought it was pretty good, so I jotted it down. And I quote, but Zion, when judgment shall be, be accomplished in her shall be redeemed and they who keep the law shall be returned to it in righteousness i thought that was really a very very good translation of that verse and that brings us to verse uh, 29 uh this has something to do with the groves that isaac mentioned and in verse 29, it says, is the, um, let's see, for they shall be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired, and you shall be confounded for the gardens that you have chosen. Well, this has to do with the shame that he actually intends that they're going to see concerning their idolatry while they're in this captivity under the oaks is what is a phrase meaning the oak groves that they went up on to turn incense and to bring their other idols in which to pay homage to and um, pray to. And in verse 30, for you shall be as an oak, he says, uh, whose leaf fades and as a garden that has no water. 
again, metaphors, you're going to be like an oak whose leaf fades. Well, what happens when you see the oak leaves dry up on the trees? They fade, they fall off as a garden that has no water. A garden that has no water is barren. It can't bring forth any fruit. And the other interesting thing here is in the next birth, he's in the next verse, he says, and the strong shall be as toe. Well, you might wonder what exactly is toe. Well, um, it's that which is shook out of flax. That's what that is. And so he's basically saying the strong, which have been the oppressors, are going to be shook out just like you'd shake this toe out of the flax. And once you've shake, sh shaken the, the toe out of the flax, you have the toe left. And he's saying that the toe and the maker of it, who's the maker of it? The one that's shaking it is going to be the maker of the toe. And it's going to be as a spark that, that the maker is going to be as the spark. And they both shall burn together and none shall quench them. So the, the, um, the toe, similar to the strong, they're going to be together burned and and nothing's going to quench them and so that is what he's conveying in that last verse there of of 31 and so that's basically it um probably everybody could have got that out of it i probably didn't need to do all that i i just it's so sometimes inspiring to see how the little details can mean so much and as I say, I don't mean to belabor the study in this, uh, that we would have to take one chapter at a time and, and spend another year in Isaiah. So maybe we'll see how it progresses as we get into these others. And uh, I just really felt like there was uh, some things that we could bring out to kind of set the stage and get our mind flowing as to what really the full intent and meaning in, in chapter one was. So I hope that's going to be edifying for those that uh, are uh, going to be able to hear it in the future. And so with that, we will close out for this fellowship. And I will say thanks for joining. And Isaac, thanks for the input there. And we'll look forward to chapter two next week. All right. Good night, all.